Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant with his Atlanta Braves hat. How's it going, Slugger? Yeah, the 0-4 Braves. Oh, yeah, the Yankees are doing terribly, too. Yeah, it's a great way to start the season. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like 0-4 out of, what, 189? It's not like they don't have time to come back. 162, but yeah. No, of course, it's no big deal, but you never want to start out like that. No, you, you really don't. But as the GM pointed out in an article in Atlanta Magazine. Still a lot of games to play. Uh, there, It's a rebuilding season. So they fired somebody, that what he right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He basically said, like, if you're a fan, don't no, have high hopes this year. Go read it. <laughs> okay. I'm not kidding. Even if that were true, the GMs don't say that. He said it. He <laughs> sounds like a straight shooter. All right. Maybe he was drunk when he did this interview. I don't know, but that's what I—that's how I read it. Yeah. And uh, Matt Arnett's in it too. There's a picture of him in front of the grocery. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Matt. So uh, I guess we, we should stop talking. Like we're not being recorded right now. Are we recording? Yeah, we are. Okay. Um, Chuck. Yes. Uh, this is stuff you should know, as mm-hmm. you know. And I, I propose that we begin in earnest now. Go. So Chuck. Yes. Back in uh, 1999. There was a guy, an entomologist, who, he's not an etymologist, but he did coin a term in an uh, editorial that he wrote for the Journal of Insect Conservation. Uh, the guy's name is Michael Samways, and the term he uh, coined is the homogenescene. Okay. And the homogenescene is this word that describes basically the um, sweeping similarity and homogeneity that's come about around the planet mm-hmm. um, since the age of exploration. It's the reason why you have uh, chili peppers as one of the basis of Thai cooking, even though chili peppers are from Mesoamerica. Yeah. Tomatoes from Mesoamerica sure. form the basis of Italian cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason why there are black people and white people in the United States. Yeah. It's the reason why there's Asians in Mexican er, in Mexico. Yeah. It's the reason why the Irish uh, entered a famine because they became too reliant on the potato, which is actually from the Andes. And it's the reason why there's Old Navy stores on every continent. <laughs> right? Are there really? Well, uh, probably, yeah. except maybe Antarctica, but I wouldn't be willing to bet too much <laughs> against that. But the homogenescene is this age that we're living in now where biologically, it's mm-hmm. like the earthworms in Minnesota. They're sure. really from Europe, but they're destroying forests in Minnesota. Right. It's all of this coupling together what um, a, a geographer named Alfred Crosby called um, uh, re-stitching the seams of Pangaea. Right. The supercontinent back together once again. I love and it. And then one of my heroes, Charles C. Mann. Of course. It's the basis of his book, the follow-up to 1491, called 1493. It's all about the homogenescene and like the world that Columbus inadvertently created. The big global stew. Thank you. Um, so a lot of people attribute that to, to Columbus. But you really need to go a little further back. And you can place the responsibility for the homogenescene, the good, the bad, the ugly, the everything. Mm-hmm. At the feet, pretty much, of one guy, an Ottoman sultan named Mehmed II, who kind of changed the course of history when he overtook Constantinople. That was a pretty good intro. That, 
you just did like a mini jazz hands yeah. at me. They were trembling. Yeah, you like tried to stop <laughs> yourself. Uh, yeah, Age of Exploration. It was kicked off by Mehmed the Second. Yeah, because uh, he basically shut down um, trade routes through the Middle East. Yeah, the Silk Roads, the famous Silk Roads, which was huge. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. Like Europe got everything from the Middle East or from Asia. Yeah. Through this, through the India, through Turkey, through the the subcontinent. Um, and this guy took control of Constantinople and effectively said, you know what? I'm kind of tired of your crusades. So any Europeans are barred from taking part in this trade. And that was that. And that was huge because then they had to take to the sea. Yeah. But think about it. Within like 50 years, all of a sudden they were like, oh, OK, well, let's just sail and see what happens. Yeah. And that changed everything. Well, did that kick off the age of exploration? Yes. OK. That that act is it what made people say, I'm going to go get in my frigate. Exactly. Yes. And just say, frigate, I'm out of here. <laughs> Sorry. Man, the wordplay today is world class. Uh, yes, Josh. So they, uh, and I also found it interesting that it seems like almost every great discovery that happened because of that was a big accident. Yeah. These dudes didn't know where they were. No. Well, Columbus, Cologne, Cristobal Cologne is apparently how he would have, what he would have answered to. Well, and then later on, Hudson was like, oops, I found Manhattan. Yeah. But that's not what I was looking for. Well, they were failing again and again and again. Ultimately, what they were looking for was a passageway to China. Yeah. Um, and they found it in Panama. But even then, they were like, still a little too wide. Right. And a little too far. Right. But um, but yes, it was very accidental. Um, except Vasco da Gama was one of the few success stories. Yeah. And Portuguese. one of the earliest, too. And he kind of cemented the Portuguese control. Over this, because um, they're, they're, the West Indies, like what we now refer to as like Indonesia, the Indian subcontinent, yeah. uh, Australasia, basically, um, that was the place where we wanted to get to, the Europeans wanted to get to, but they couldn't do it over land any longer. Right. Well, the Gama sailed down around Africa, past the Cape of Good Hope, and up to India, mm-hmm. and came back and said, okay, Portugal owns the world now. And they kind of did, uh, as far as being the dominant traders of the of the time, at least for like for pretty much the whole 16th century. Yeah, um, and Europe, of course, wouldn't have that. So the Dutch and the English, you know, ponied up, and well, ponied up means they paid. They uh, manned up, I guess, <laughs> and said, you know what, we got to get on the on the scene here because Portugal's kicking our butt. Yeah, in the spice trade and. I looked up the the whole spice thing just to get a little more into it because I was like, why were spices such a big deal? Well, he who controls the spice controls the universe. <laughs> well, it was kind of true back then. Um, spices were a, were a huge deal because, uh, one, Europe didn't have these exotic spices because they didn't grow there. They had gruel. They had, they had garlic. They had onion. Okay. And they had like horseradish. <laughs> That's about it. So uh, all of a sudden these exotic spices... Uh, come 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 around, and it makes crappy meat taste better. Yeah, it makes spoiled meat taste edible, <laughs> and other bad foods that have gone bad. Gruel, just, yeah, gruel, just spice the crap out of it, and um, it was expensive, so it became like a sign of nobility. So, like, if you were in- entertaining and you were like either noble or wealthy, you would like really turn it on to your guest if you like brought out the spice tray. Right. Like along with the meal that's already spiced. 
Right. And they would just sample different little spices, and it was like a really big thing. And then to top it all off, it was served by a captured human being wearing like <laughs> bright feathers. So you could really show off for your guests. That's true. Uh, spices also improved health. They were used yeah. medicinally to treat dozens of maladies. Well, let's get to the, the star of this episode. Preser- preserved meats. Not there yet. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, salt, yeah, it's salt a huge preservative. That's like, how we get jerky. Yeah, salt was so valuable they like hit it in the Tower of London. Oh yeah, I think they called it the Salt Tower even for a little while. Oh. Not officially. And then uh, peppercorn evidently was one of the most valued. It was like Still, a really huge deal. If you had pink peppercorn. Yeah, plus it's not cheap pepper even to this day. No, but uh, they would actually use peppercorn as rent in areas where like they didn't have money so they would use this currency and like pay peppercorn rent right. to your landlord the, in the background somebody's shouting bring out your dead and you're paying your rent in peppercorn <laughs> exactly so that's that's a primer on why it's such a big deal to get spices back in the day well plus also ultimately the reason why people were doing everything and anything like Mehmed shut down um, the Silk Roads in 1453 Columbus set sail in 1492 yeah so in less than 40 years, um, like we're like, oh, okay, we, we have to figure this out. But I think the the big driver of it all was money. Sure. There was a merchant class that could make money from selling this stuff to the nobility. That's right. There you have it. There you have it. So where were we? Portugal ruling the, the spice trade. Okay. Um, and then the Dutch are like, we got to put a stop to this. We need to go form a corporation, a chartered company. Yeah. Uh, one of the world's first. <laughs> I'm gonna butcher this. It's called, Dutch, man. I mean, that's hard to say. The Vering Verenigde Oost Indisch Company, <laughs> or the Dutch East India Company in English. Yeah, or the VOC. The VOC, which is probably what we'll call it, or we, if we refer to the Dutch, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, because they were representative of the um, Dutch government. It was a government. Establishing government um, initially funded company. Right. The 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 Dutch came about and said, "Hey, Portugal, you're not the only guys on the map now." And then shortly after that, the English said, "What's a map?" And the English <laughs> said, "You know what? We're going to form the East India Company." Which, by the way, we should do an episode on just itself. The East India Company. Man, it was brutal. Yeah. Just the crazy stuff that the East India Company did. Killing in the name of spice. Yes, and the Dutch did too. Oh, yeah. we'll see. And pretty much everybody did. Euro- Europeans were brutal. Um, but uh, so the EIC, the East India Company, or the, the English um, and the Dutch suddenly hit the scene and uh, gave Portugal a run for its money and basically wrested control away from Portugal right. and started dividing it between themselves. Yes. Not- That's the scene in the West Indies. That's right. And then they all said, hey, let's go west and check out what kind of fur is being traded. I'm over. sorry, that's the scene in the East Indies. Would you say West Indies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice catch. So they, uh, the VOC and the EIC, mm-hmm. England and Holland, let's call it. Okay. Or we call them the Dutch. Sure. Or maybe we should just say they're from Amsterdam. Okay. They're all the same. Jerry's laughing. Or let's call them the, ne- <laughs> the, the Netherlands. Everyone <laughs> in Rotterdam is really mad at you right now. Are they? Oh, yeah. Um. Rotterdam's very nice, actually. I would imagine. I think all of uh, all of the Netherlands are nice. It's lovely, lovely country. Um, okay, so uh, so they both say, "Let's go check out the New World because mm-hmm. there's got to be some fur there." 
and let's do it. Let's let's beat the the Portuguese <laughs> over there. Let's do it. I, think <laughs> I mean, that not was together. On the charter. Yeah. Um. So we can do it. <laughs> right. So uh, yeah. Now they were competing. They they didn't do anything together. It was all competition. There's yeah. competition in the east for the Spice Islands, and now there's competition in the west, and specifically in the um, northeastern what is now the northeastern United States. And the whole thing began with, um, like, you were poking fun at Henry Hudson, who tried to look for a northeast passage to China. For the Dutch, though. That was that was on his own. He was an English explorer. Oh, I thought he was paid. For the northeast. Then the oh, Dutch gotcha. said, hey, while you're up there, look for uh, a northwest passage. Try that one, and we'll pay you. Now, here's what I was curious about. Was he, like, a traitor to his country for doing this, or was it just, like, all bets are off when you're a hired explorer? Uh, I think it was you, well... Cristobal Colon was, uh, I think he was Portuguese. No, he was Genoese. He was Italian. And he was exploring for um, the Spanish when he landed on, okay. uh, on Hispaniola. Hmm. So, yeah, it was, I think, whoever whoever would pay for your expedition. All right. And, yeah, so Henry Hudson, I don't believe I've ever heard him considered a traitor for that. But he basically contracted out with the Dutch. That's right. The VOC. And he didn't find that Northwest Passage, but he did discover um, the Hudson River. He did? It wasn't called that until he found it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Long Island and mm-hmm. another place called Manhattan. Yes. And now we get to the crux of our story, because the Dutch are aware that there's a place called Manhattan, and they want to check it out, because it has awesome street food. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he did a little trading there initially. And that's how he kind of established it for the Dutch, was by taking part in some commerce. Yeah, because furs um, were uh, fairly lucrative. They were nothing compared to spices, but they were enough to like get in Mason's interest. <laughs> Fur was nothing compared to peppercorn. Yeah. That's because we were lousy with animals at the time. Yeah. Like we didn't know what we were doing with them. Yeah, you just kill them all, and the fur is easy to come by. Yeah. Peppercorn, though, doesn't grow here. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So uh, he uh, he claims it for the Dutch. The um, States General of the Netherlands set up the Dutch West India Company mm-hmm. after this, you know, uh, revelation that they have, you know, trading partners over there. And they started to colonize it. That's right, and it became uh, New Netherland, not New Belgium, not New <laughs> or New Amsterdam. Yeah, New New Amsterdam is New York. Exactly. New Netherland is the area around New York. Yeah, specifically, uh, I think New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, Delaware, and parts of Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. Yeah, like a lot, a lot of area. Yeah. So the um, the Dutch West India Company sends a bunch of Dutch people to colonize and start hanging out, uh, kind of making friends with the local Indians. Yeah, the Lenape. Algonquin Lenape tribe. So I also read that there were Delaware, the Meadowhawk, and the Wappinger were all there, or Wappinger. Yeah. Um, were all in the area as well. Sure. Um, so the the Dutch are like hanging out a- around these people. They're the new guys, and they're talking here, there. And within five years, the um, director himself of the VOC, P- Peter Minuit, Shows up. Yeah. And he's basically just coming to check on this newly established colony. And while he's there, one of the things he does is um, try to establish claim for the Dutch of Manhattan by buying it from the local tribe. Yeah. Well, at first, though, the Indians are all like, 
we don't uh, we don't trade land and air and water. That's that's for everyone to use. Right. And like, then that's, the Dutch. Said, we don't understand that. The Dutch said, "Have you tried liquor?" And <laughs> now that, is that true? This, I couldn't supposedly. Find, okay. Supposedly, this is what Jane McGrath says. She's pretty good at history generally. I just looked at the. I couldn't find the liquor. I couldn't find any other great sources for that. So according to this article, um, the the Dutch said, "Hey guys, let's um, let's partake in some liquor." And the Indians on the island drank it with them and got really drunk. And that's where the name Manhattan supposedly comes from, which I guess it would be in an Algonquin t- uh, tongue, yeah, because that's what everybody spoke up there. But it was. Um, Manahatchetaniank, which means the place we all got drunk. Yeah. And that's where Manhattan comes from, supposedly. That's the legend. Well, that's what they say. The Dutch trans- uh, translated that into Manahatta, and then that eventually became Manhattan. Right. So the Dutch are there. Peter Minuit's there. And he's like, you know what? Let's just let's see what we can do, and let's try to buy this. Um, like you said, the, the Indians at the time... Supposedly nowhere in in the New World um, understood or believed in the concept of owning land. Yeah. So the idea of an Indian saying, "I will cede this land to you," you you have to also follow that up with the image of him turning around and laughing to his friends. It's not even ours. Right. <laughs> and not only that, apparently Manhattan wasn't um, inhabited. It was a place where they hunted and fished and kind of hung out sometimes. But yeah. apparently, no local tribe lived on Manhattan. So, which made the idea of one of them selling it to them uh, even funnier. And no one knows what, which group the Dutch um, bought this from. The right. only record of this, this transaction ever taking place was a, a letter written by Peter Minuit, who just mentions offhand um, the next year that, oh, yeah, we bought Manhattan for a, a chest of, of stuff worth 60 guilders. Yeah, that's the old rumor. Twenty four dollars bought Manhattan, and that's, you know, been disputed here and there. Um, well, the sixty guilders is what he wrote that he spent. He spent for Manhattan, right? But how much that was worth at the time? Like you said, a right. lot of people said twenty four dollars. I've seen a thousand. It wasn't much, right? Um, I did a little more reading on this too, and it's because I, you know, of course, the first thing you think is, boy, the Native Americans got rooked out of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and. Who knew right. at the time? But like you said, they didn't even own it, so they sort of pulled a fast one. And in the end, I think most historians think that neither party really fully even understood the terms of the sale. And it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, we have these trinkets now. It was, hey, we've got some potential military partners. Yeah. And the Dutch were like, hey, we've got some potential trade partners. Right. So it was a lot more – it meant a lot more than – the 60 guilders. Right. And even, uh, the trinkets, like you mentioned, that's under dispute as well. They, yeah. they, it's all, it's also in, in addition to the $24, which is estimated in the 19th century as kind of a way to make the Indians look like idiots. Right. Um, saying that it was just a, a box of trinkets makes it sound like, even, makes them sound even dumber. Right. But probably what it was were like axes. Yeah. Metal kettles. Um, scissors, just stuff like the Indians, just technology they didn't have. That yeah, was like it was cutting like edge. A really big time. deal. Sure. So, um, the I guess the idea that the man that the Indians selling Manhattan for twenty four dollars is um, false. At the very least, it's it's been um, taken out of context. Agreed. But what we have here, I think, what what you're saying is that there's two parties, neither of which are in any 
um, position to sell or buy this land. Yeah. Who do just that. Yeah. Um, and the sale of Brooklyn actually is a lot better rec- recorded. There's, it's a lot better documented. Um, from 1636 to 1684, over like 22 treaties, the local um, tribes sold Manhattan or Brooklyn uh, piece by piece. Oh, really? like What amounted to like 12,000 guilders over time. And um, historians now see that as the Indians kind of figuring out that if you sold this land that you didn't even think you owned to the Europeans, right. it was a way of staving off your eventual removal. Yeah. And that they were basically doing it. They kind of mastered like pawning the Europeans so they their own views of land. They weren't the rubes that they're painted to be yes. oftentimes. I think that's the point here. Yeah, I like that. Okay. They said, check out Park Slope. <laughs> Can you imagine the baby carriages one day? Right. And the young yuppies who will be living here? Yes. Are they yuppies? Do they call They're still yuppies, if not in name and practice. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the long story short is that the Dutch now believe that they own Manhattan and New Netherlands in short order. Like by the end of the 17th century, they own what's now New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, right? That's right. Uh, at the same time, back east in the East Indies, things are starting to heat up, specifically around what I said earlier uh, is the star of this episode, this, as far as spices go, yeah. nutmeg. Yeah. Uh, nutmeg was very valuable. It tasted yummy mm-hmm. when sprinkled on puddings yes. and desserts. And uh, it was an aphrodisiac, supposedly. It was a hallucinogenic uh, powder. It's an abortifacient, which means it What's can that? cause abortions. Really? So if you're pregnant, you are not supposed to touch nutmeg. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and during the Black Plague, they would wear nutmeg around their neck. And if you think that sounds a little hinky... Uh, it might have actually kept the fleas away that carried the Black Plague, so it yeah. may not have been simply superstition. Right. So they were kind of smart. Plus, again, we get to what what really drove people, the markup. Yeah, big time. They, they uh, Some traders marked it up as much as 6,000%. Wow. That's a lot of profit. Yeah. Which would make people go crazy for it, which is what the Dutch did. That's right. And at the time, uh, up until about the mid-19th century, the only place you could find this stuff was uh, in the Banda Islands in Indonesia. group of islands, got this nutmeg, this one island in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, Paula Run, Mm -hmm. which they called Run. Yeah, that one was lousy with this. It's it's one of the smallest islands of the Banda Islands, but it was like just covered in nutmeg. And there's how many, I think, five islands to the Bandas? Was it? And um, four were controlled by the Dutch, clearly yeah. and outright, mm-hmm. and then one was controlled by the British. That's right. And the Dutch um, landed on the Banda Islands and kicked the Portuguese out, it did their little treaty thing with the uh, locals, <laughs> which they like to do. That's right. The locals said, okay, thanks for the money. I don't know what you're talking about, and proceeded to trade with other people. And well, yeah, they wanted to establish the monopoly. The Dutch did. Yeah, they're saying, like, we want to be the only exporter of, of nutmeg. Right. You can only sell to us. Yeah. And then here, sign this. Yeah. But the locals did, they had no idea what, what was going on. They didn't understand this concept. Yeah. Or they just didn't really care if the Dutch wanted a monopoly or not. Right. So long story short, the Dutch brutalized the, the band of natives. Yeah. Um, enslaved Pretty much all them, of them. Uh, carried out like uh, raids and uh, massacres of villages, executed chiefs, 
basically um, wiped themselves out of the the local population that was capable of growing nutmeg. So they had to import colonists to, from the Netherlands to come grow the nutmeg. That's right. But they had their monopoly. Well, almost the monopoly because the British still had control of run. Yeah. Um, and like you said, even though it was small, it was lousy with uh, with nutmeg. It's so crazy that nutmeg was like the reason all this was going on. I know. I've got like four whole nutmeg nuts in my pantry right now, and it's like nothing to me. <laughs> I thought you were going to my pants. I didn't understand that. It's like, what's that good for? I just have one in my pocket. Uh, gets rid of fleas. It does. Uh all right, so the Dutch... Um, you were saying they didn't quite have a monopoly because the British had run. Exactly. Uh, the British had run. So uh, they would dip um, they would dip the nutmeg in lime, the Dutch would, which mm-hmm. would mean it, it can't grow, yeah. like if you plant it. Yeah, because think about it. If you're exporting nutmeg, yeah. it's the fruit, the mast of the nutmeg tree, yeah. which means it's also the seed, which any smart person could take that, put it in the ground in a similar climate and grow nutmeg, and then all of a sudden the Dutch doesn't... The Dutch don't have that monopoly any longer. So they very ingeniously dipped it in lime. Right. That was that. Jerk move. It is a jerk move, but it's a good way to control nutmeg. That's true. But it didn't quite work because uh, somebody decided, uh, one of the higher-ups, that we need to partner up with England here. Yeah. Instead of trying to, like, war them out of business with the nutmeg, right. let's partner up. Um, in 1619, they signed a cooperation agreement. But there was a uh, commander of the VOC, uh, Jan Piertzun Cohen, mm-hmm. who said, screw that and screw your agreement. I'm going to go and I'm going to burn down all the nutmeg trees. Yeah, he seems like a very vindictive kind of guy. You think? Like he wanted the British out. He wanted the Banda Islands just under Dutch control so badly that even after his, his the higher up said, well, we're cool with the British. He was like, no, no, you know yeah. what? I'm just going to burn the whole island down. That's right. He was crazy. He was. Yeah. Uh, so fast forward to the second Anglo-Dutch War. Mm-hmm. The Dutch finally get control of Run. Yeah. In 1666. And then right after that, they, um, the the Dutch and the English said, "All right, things are a little out of hand right now. Let's end this war with a treaty." Yeah. A very appropriately named Treaty of Breda. Well. <laughs> Back up a little bit. Before this, in 1664, uh-huh. we need to point out what's going on back in Manhattan. England took control of Manhattan pretty much by sailing four ships into the harbor. And because the fur trade wasn't as lucrative as they thought it was going to be, the West India Company from uh, Holland said, you know, we're not so concerned about that area, so we're not going to fortify it too much. We're not going to send them a lot of ammo. Right. So basically, when the English showed up in 1664... And said surrender. They all went okay, right? Like we'll surrender because the Dutch, our you know motherland, kind of forgot about us over here. They don't care about us. Yeah. And so come on, it's yours. And by this time, also they'd formed the first brewery. Remember? Oh yeah. Block and Christensen. So they were just getting drunk. Yeah, they were like, come <laughs> on in. And of course, England was like, sweet. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. By sure. the way, um, the uh, the Dutch and the English after what was the war? The, that was the second Anglo-Dutch War. Okay. Second of three, I think. And in the Treaty of Breda, um, between the Dutch and the English, um, settled a lot of disputes, ended that war. But they had disputes in the, in the West Indies. So this way, the, um, Dutch had all of the, or in the East Indies, had all of the Banda Islands. 
Yeah. Um, the there was a lot of skirmishes between the Dutch and the English in Suriname mm-hmm. over cocoa and sugar plantations. And finally, in in the Treaty of Breda, which was um, very much in the Dutch's favor, the English ended up with Manhattan. They said, you just have that. You're already there. And it was kind of, um, as Mann puts it in 1493, it was kind of a booby prize. Yeah. Like, you know, the English were like, we, you, you can keep that. It's all right. And sure. the Dutch were like, no, no, we want you to have it. We're, <laughs> we're so grateful for the, right. for the islands and for Suriname. You keep Manhattan. Yeah. And today, the Olsen twins live there. <laughs> well, at least one of them does. Uh, so in the end, England, kept Manhattan, which they kind of already had. The Dutch kept Run, which they kind of already had again by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but England kind of pulled a fast one by uh, taking lime-free nutmeg and planting it on different islands, like so Granada. Who came out on top? England. I would say so. So they sort of ended up trading Manhattan for nutmeg. That's a really, <laughs> really roundabout way to put it. Uh, and then, of course, in 1673... The Dutch retook Manhattan, said, no, 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 it's ours again. It was a third war, uh, Anglo-Dutch war, but they were also fighting the French at the same time, mm-hmm. which really screwed them. They went bankrupt, basically, and finally in 1674, the Treaty of Westminster, they finally said, all right, here, officially, once again, you have Manhattan. Man, the Dutch were like <laughs> all over the place, weren't they? Who knew? You. You. You knew. That's it. That's all for uh, Nutmeg and Manhattan. I'd like to do more History of New York stuff. I love that. Yeah, it's cool. Great topic. Very cool. Uh, You got anything else? Nah. If uh, you want to learn more about Nutmeg, you should type that word into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also type in East India Company, Dutch West Indies Company, like all sorts of cool stuff, and it'll bring up all sorts of cool things. Try Manhattan. You'll be pleasantly surprised if you type that into the search bar. It'd probably be a drink. Maybe. Article in there, too. Uh, that would pleasantly surprise me. Sure. Um, so I said handy search bar, which means it's time for listener to me. Uh, Josh, appropriately enough, this is about Robert De Niro. <laughs> Talking New York. The Tribeca area. Uh, hi, guys. I worked in the service industry for about 10 years. Uh, this is about tipping, by the way. Uh, from salad bars to four-star hotels, and I've had tons and tons of stories. Most memorably is the one I had when I served Mr. Robert De Niro and his family. Um, this was about seven years ago. Uh, I was acting as doorman at the Fairmont, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Nice place. Yes. De Niro stayed with us for about three nights, and I happened to work every day during his stay. Because I worked the night shift, I had several opportunities to greet him and his lovely wife, and pretty much uh, no one else was around. His wife was very charming and talkative and would indulge the driver in genuine conversation. Uh, This would afford me time to fit in a little small talk with the man himself, and his reactions were classic De Niro. He even shrugged his shoulders when he spoke. The man is a movie. Can you imagine being De Niro where people are always like, dude, that's so De Niro. He's just like, that's me. Like, please stop it. Uh, Anyways, for some reason, his wife and himself took a liking to me and requested me to assist them in checking out of their room at the end of the stay. Uh, He had three beautiful children, all mixed race, like myself, and he had to tend to one of them who was dealing with an eye infection. I managed their luggage and their checkout and proceeded down to the driveway. At the entrance, it was all hands on deck, including the general manager, all supervisors, and my bell staff. 
Uh, problem is, on a checkout like this, uh, too many people get in the way of us lackeys receiving any kind of proper gratuity. On top of that, celebrities tend to have what we call a fixer, someone who acts as a middleman between the hotel and the guest. Because, of course, the guest doesn't want to talk to the, the bellhop. Right. Got someone else do that. Sure. Uh, so I'm waiting next to his vehicle. Lu- uh, luggage is packed. I'm not expecting any tip because uh, it's par for the course with this kind of checkout. And I can't complain, having had the opportunity to serve someone I admired greatly. At that point, Mr. De Niro walked up to the fixer, and I heard him say, Are these guys taken care of? Of course, the fixer replies, Oh, yes, of course, of course, of course, knowing darn well that wasn't true. That's when De Niro pulls the most classic move ever. He looks at the fixer and says, Okay, well, I want to take care of them myself. I wish I could do a De Niro. I'm not even going to embarrass myself, though. I'm surprised you can't. Nah. Uh, uh, proceeds to hand out $20 bills to all of the bellmen, uh, simply for holding the door open. Then he walks over to me, thanks me for my service, and shakes my hand. My heart is beating like Jimmy Conway. I look Jimmy Conway's boot in Billy Bat's face. I look down, and there are five $20 bills folded up neatly in my palm. Nice. He seriously folded up the bills in his palm and shook my hand like Scorsese had just called action. Uh, the only thing I could think was, wow, he really just did that. I basically blacked out after that. And that is from Corey Osborne. And he came to and wrote the email. Pretty cool. That is very cool. I love cool. that. De Niro taking care of the, the common man. Yeah. And, and boo on the fixer. His... Yeah. Fix yeah. this, buddy. That was a great one. Thanks a lot, Corey. That was a good tipping story. That was maybe the best one we got. I think so. Um, let's see. What else, Chuck? I got nothing. Can you think of anything for anybody to write in about? Uh, if you got any interesting uh, Manhattan history stories. That's a great one. Or Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Historical Society is killing it. You know, our friend uh, Rachel Grundy does uh, literary pub crawls. That's right. That's right. So seek out the literary pub crawl in South Manhattan, and Rachel and her cohorts will take you around to the pubs, and you'll drink and learn about the famous people who wrote there and drank there. Yes. That's great, Chuck. Sure. Um, so, yeah, what Chuck said, and you can uh, wrap it up in a uh, tweet, yeah. 140 characters or less, to SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash stuff you should know, or you can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, send it to stuffpodcast at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?